0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording
1: and lines are now closed.
2: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, to all of our listeners who are listening uh, to Drive Time Show. You are here with uh, Anique. I will be uh, presenting today's show from Voice of Islam Radio in London. Today we will be reflecting back to the year the past year as we are just around the corner of new year and soon we will be entering in 2023 and this particular day particular week we will be going back to some highlights and how we did and what kind of show we you know uh, did and what kind of topic we discussed and we, you know, were begin reflecting on the year that was 2022 and uh, what a year it was so in today. So in today's show, we will look back at the month of May on DTS. And uh, in, Mus- in in May, Muslim all around the world celebrated Eid al-Fitr, which is one of the Islamic festivities which marks the end of the holy month of Ramadan. We began the month with an Eid special show in which we spoke to Ahmadi Muslims all over the world about their celebrations and Eid traditions. We also reported on the government's plan on deporting illegal refugees to Rwanda. And at the end of month, we dedicated a whole week to a Khilafat special about all Khulafah Rashidin, the Caliphs of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing Allah be upon him, and Khulafah Hamadiyat, the caliphs of the promised messiah, peace be upon him, to commemorate Khilafat Day, the day of khalif. So how did DTS keep listening? And let's take a moment to pick some key highlights. We will now go to one of the recorded shows and you will be listening some glimpses. And some audios from the past. Let's go for our first audio, and we'll be right back after that.
3: Uh, just after our, we go to our next guest, and we have with us uh, on the line um, Zakia Mohammed Saleh, um, and Udu, she's from all the way from from Ghana. She's a public servant of the Public Services Commission of Ghana and an entrepreneur. Uh, Zakia, Alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Assalamu
4: alaikum.
3: Thank you very much for coming well, and a very joyous Eid Mubarak to you and to the members in Ghana. Um, how how do you welcome the month of Ramadan and, and, and what kind of preparations do you do before this month of Ramadan? Um, okay, JazakAllah for
4: the question. Um, Eid, Eid in, in Ghana are always very welcome. And um, as um, a mother of three, um, it is a time whereby um, I take time off work because um, then I would have time to say my prayers on time, take part in Sarawi, um, and then um, all the other activities that comes along with it. So, mm-hmm. first and foremost, I make sure that I take time off work because of the, the hustle and bustle of um, working in Accra. There's usually a lot of traffic. And then, since then, um, Ramadan is a very special month. It's a special month during the the year. It is, and it comes once in a year. So, I mean, it is a time that you, you need to sacrifice certain things to be able to concentrate on the needs of of um, the, the the month of Ramadan in order that you would, you would derive all the benefits, the benefits and blessings from from this month. And then that also, also um, as a, as a woman, it is. Um, Usually, a time that I would have to go to the market to to make sure that I buy enough groceries and other food items because usually you would have um, guests, um, families, neighbors, friends who are not Muslims. You would have to sometimes invite them over um, after the the break of fast. So, it is um, one of the preparations that we do here in Ghana, especially with women that we, we make sure that there is enough food for for Suhur and um, during the break of fast
5: mm.
4: and then and then also you would, you would find sometimes that um a few weeks to to Ramadan definitely um you would, you would you would have a number of sermons about Ramadan in the mosque during um Friday prayers or or when when you, when you go for Uh, Maghrib or Isha prayer, there's a lot of sermons on the do's and don'ts of Ramadan and then how to properly derive the full benefit of, of Ramadan. So these these are a few things. I don't know whether I'm really answering your questions, but no, of course you have. So it is, it's it's <laughs> very it's
3: a very delightful to hear how you, the preparations are. Mm-hmm. I, I think everywhere in the world, and we've talked we've spoken to people from many different parts of the world. Everyone is this. It's okay. a very it's a similar feeling of how they prepare for Ramadan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but coming to to Eid, mm-hmm. what are the, some of the traditions uh, and some of the celebrations that take place in Eid uh, on this day in in Ghana?
4: Okay, so w- with me, coming from the northern part of Ghana, I have experienced Eid in the northern part of Ghana and in the southern part of Ghana as well. They are a bit different, but then quite similar. In the northern part of Ghana, for for instance, you would find that on the, the day of Eid, early in the morning, because the communities are closely mixed with, with a central mosque, you would find that everyone in Dresden, in white clothes, and the men would usually um, converge at the mission house. The women would follow later, all dressed up in white. And then, and then the, Allah is being praised. So There's the, someone who takes the lead, and then the uh, the others follow in 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 reciting Allah for Allah for La ilaha illallah. So, it is, it, we we all converge at one point. And then recite La ilaha illallah, and then we walk all the way uh, to, to the premises of the mosque to say our Eid prayers. So that is a, is a month, that tradition is a month in, in Wa. And after the Eid prayers, you'll find people greeting each other, people that you haven't seen for a very long time. You get to, to, to see them, you embrace each other, you wish each other and Eid blessings and, and all of that. So afterwards, everybody going back home, There the are special meals that are prepared during this time. You you get to share some of the packed meals to the less privileged or to neighbors and to friends who come over to join you in the celebration. So it is generally mostly a three-day celebration in Wah, where I come from, and it's, it's, it's a feeling of um, showing gratitude because um, we have fasted and then we have endured all all that comes with it and we have also derived the benefits of the blessings of Ramadan. So it is a time to be joyous and a time to be, I mean, to be happy. Everyone is usually happy around that that period.
3: Of course. Of but course. In, in,
4: in Accra, usually a picnic in various um, centers, in various mission houses. So you would find families would carry along their, their food, like, I mean, not um, extraordinarily lavish, but then um, different types of food. And families would carry them into their car, converge at one point, and then after prayers and listening to the eat, um, every every family would be in a group. And then you would um, find everyone sharing food. I mean, there's, there's always enough to eat. Even if you brought nothing, mm. you would still have something to, to feed on during the mm. eat. And, and sure. then we have na- neighbors from around the community. You would find children, children, family. They they, they come along, and it's it's so beautiful because you get to share with everyone, irrespective of whether you're an Ahmadi Muslim, you're you're um, um, you belong to another sect of, uh, of of Islam, or whether you're a Muslim or, or you're a Christian or whatever religion. It's it's just a general feeling of brotherliness. And we have games as well. <laughs> You'll find the men playing football, football or um, basketball. So usually what, what we do is that we we invite um, a team from mostly a, a Christian group, probably a Catholic group or a Presbyterian group. <laughs> invite them to come and then um, have, have a match, a football match with, um, um, our, our Ahmadi football team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's usually very lovely. There's, there's a food, football match to, to watch. There is a play park for children and um, there are sweets that are distributed mostly to children. And it's it's just it's lovely. It's, it's, it's generally a good feeling. And then al- Alhamdulillah, we we look forward to all these things during um, each week.
3: MashaAllah it sounds very beautiful, and then of course, I'd love to be able to uh, one day uh, join the the tradition of Eid celebration in in Ghana. So it is a very it's a desire of mine, a wish of mine to also uh, visit Ghana. Inshallah,
4: you would one day. Inshallah,
3: inshallah. Um, it's been a Zakiya, It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on, uh, and, and again for myself here. Uh, alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Wa
2: So you were listening to one of the guests who joined us on the uh, Eid special show and discussed and, uh, you know, uh, shared his her experience that how uh, she is celebrating or celebrated uh, their Eid and uh, why they celebrate Eid and what kind of activities they do on that day. Just to discuss further... <clears throat> And in depth, Eid al-Fitr is a festival that marks the end of the holy month of Ramadan. And it is celebrated on first of Shival, uh, which is, you know, the uh, Islamic lunar calendar. This joyous day serves as a reward for those who observe fast and occupy themselves in the worship of Allah during the blessed month of Ramadan. Eid al-Fitr means the feast of breaking the fast. So after keeping fast for 29 or 30 days the Eid ul fitr comes and people come together, they offer prayer they, it's a day of joy, you sit, sit together you do different kind of activities, you have a good meal So the true essence of Eid commemorates the month of Ramadan the month which is spent in the remembrance of Allah and fasting is only a means to intensify this The Holy Scripture of Muslims was revealed by God to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in this very month. And Idul Fitr truly is the perfect way to reconnect and strengthen bond between each other. Nonetheless, what really makes it so perfect? In the 30 days Muslims spend before it, during the month of Ramadan, Muslims try to get rid of all of their bad habits and try to show as much love and mercy as possible to the creation of God, thus leading to unity between Muslims brothers. But the beauty of Ramadan is not only that it unites Muslim, but it also unites communities, cultures, and other religions. Indeed, the month of Ramadan can be a life-changing experience for many. In the month, you pray to God, you are connecting with God, and indeed, When you truly celebrate the month of Ramadan, you feel change within yourself and after that you celebrate Eid al-Fitr. It again, as I mentioned before, the feast of breaking the fast. Now we will listen to another recorded, you know, shows uh, recording where we were asked how they are celebrating the Eid and the purpose of it. Uh, Please listen to it and then we will be back after that.
3: Uh, of Eid and we have with us on the line Deshaun Ellis uh, who is a foreign service officer for international cooperation in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from Belmopan City in Belize Deshon assalamualaikum peace be upon you uh, and welcome to the drive time show and another part of the interview uh, for of um, the introduction sorry is that uh, Deshon has uh, recently converted from is- to Chris- to Islam from Christianity in 2020. Dishon Assalamu Alaikum, and jo- welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa well, alaikum,
6: Salaam, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited.
3: Mm, pleasure to have to you here. A part of it. Pleasure <laughs> to have you here, and of course, uh, a very joyous Eid Mubarak to you and your family as well. Um, Deshaun, um, thank you. culturally speaking, how much of a contrast is Eid um, opposed to Belize's other religious celebrations?
6: Well, to me, um, well, Belize is a Christian country and so honestly, it's kind of hard to think of any major differences in how the holidays are celebrated in general, you know, um, you know, it's celebrated with family, friends, there's prayer, giving thanks to God, gift giving, it's pretty similar culturally. The only difference I would find is maybe in the time given off to celebrate, to actually celebrate the holidays. You know in Belize all Christian holidays are public and bank holidays we just got a five-day weekend last month for Easter holidays For Islamic holidays however, I would have to you know apply for my yeah. days off from work to actually celebrate it with my family with Jamaat and it also takes away a bit of the opportunity to share it with my family and friends as well especially if it's during the week because they won't be able to get the time off you know hmm. and so we, we do miss out on those those opportunities um, in that sense Um, as as a personal experience though I find that my connection and my understanding of Islamic religious holidays is stronger than when I was a Christian celebrating Christian holidays because Mm. I think I owe that to being a convert in a Christian country with a very small jamaat and you know so I really had to actually learn The reason behind the season from scratch, you know, rather than it just being my culture, something I was born into, you know, something that just always is, so. You know, in that sense,
7: I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. There. Can you tell us, Deshawn, as well, about your first experience of fasting during the month of Ramadan? How was that for you? Um, Our sister from Argentina, she she had a very interesting uh, answer on that as well. But I want to ask you how your experience was.
6: Sure. My first Ramadan experience, I converted in 2020, but it was late 2020. So my first experience was last year. Hmm. So It was really impacted by COVID. Um, you know, I had to take the vaccine. I got a little sick, um, not with COVID, but, you know, my, my fasting was yeah. interrupted. Um, you know, but I still try to make the best of it. You know, we tried to get together virtually, um, try to host small iftar dinners when regulations allow, just to try to stem the distance. Um, you know, of COVID and keep each other motivated as a jamat. Um, fasting itself wasn't too bad, Alhamdulillah. What I do remember is having trouble, hmm. um, maybe waking up early for suhoor. Sure. <laughs> That was my trial and remained my trial this year. <laughs> okay. Inshallah, makes me a morning person soon. But no, it was a really great, um, positive experience still. And you know, by the time it was Eid, we were able to come together as a jamaat. You know, the restrictions were lighter then. So, Alhamdulillah.
7: Can, can I ask you yeah. how long? What? What? Like what? What are the timings that we're looking at? Um, the 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 fast. I mean, what time is the sunset around? In Belize, how long is oh, yeah. that day? Because just just to give our listeners yeah, some it. idea
6: right for this eid we wake... Uh, snow is about 4 a bit after 4 oh okay and yeah and then um, iftar is like 6:15
7: Six fifteen. So
6: it's a bit more than uh huh. So it's ah. a bit in the evening. Yes. So it's a bit more of, than
7: twelve. reminds me of Ghana as well yeah. because it was it was pretty much the same time. Really. And over here you had this was like three four years ago I'm talking about. Yeah. And over here in the UK you had the the, 18, 19, yeah. hour the fast. 19 hour fasts the nineteen hour fasts. Yeah. So, no. so like, luckily you haven't so, experienced yes, I that can't yet. Get there.
5: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh
6: um, dear.
3: What do you look forward most to when when it comes to when it comes to Eid, when it comes to the celebration with the community members? Mm. Uh, what do you look forward to yeah. most on this day?
6: Well, there's so much, right? But um, I think what I most look forward to is really that feeling of shared excitement. You know, um, you're just coming off of that success of passing um, that positive energy. You know, we've commuted we've completed this big spiritual experience as a community together. Um, everyone's all dressed up, um the air is just buzzing, you know, I I feel like you can't beat that feeling and that's what I most look forward to. Mm-hmm. So so far, you know, maybe it changes as we go along. Um but yeah, I can't I can't beat that. And of course, um the food I
3: can't <laughs> forget the food. I look forward to well, the food
7: too. That's good, something everyone looks forward cool to. Good thing you reminded us. Right. Tell us about <laughs> Belizean food. What what's what's there on the table? If I come to Belize, let's say next year, <laughs> what what will I find on that table on Eid?
6: Oh, well, inshallah. I oh, one of my favorite topics, sure. <laughs> um, so our national dish is rice and beans, stewed chicken, and salad. So there's no doubt that people should expect this meal when uh-huh. coming to in um, Belize. We call this our Sunday dinner, actually. Um, it's tradition that we eat it every Sunday. I have no idea why, but that's <laughs> our national dish, and we eat it every Sunday. Um, you know, we also have many desserts, um, some traditional pies and puddings made out of coconut, lime, bread. It's very, very good. Alhamdulillah, Belize is also, like, Um, A melting pot of culture. We have about nine main ethnicities in the country. Wow. Um, Yeah. And in our Jamaat alone, you know, it's small, but we have um, a good mix. We have native Creole, like like I am. We have indigenous Maya. We have Garinago people, Mestizo people, which is of Hispanic descent. And of course, we also have the the Pakistani Imam families. And Mm. so we really have the opportunity to taste. From so many different cultures during Eid and any other event that we have um, in the Jamaat, it's really an exciting time for food. Yeah. Definitely,
7: <laughs> wonderful, yeah. Sister Deshawn. Lastly, we want to ask you about um, <clears throat> the local population of the country of Belize. Are they aware of the Islamic month of Ramadan and the Eid festivals? Um, how 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 does that look?
6: Well, our Jamaat, our president, he. They go on the news every time any of the events go around Come around sorry, mm. just to you know build that awareness and that connection with um, the the local community. Um, we even have different events outside of um, or um, religious events just to you know engage with them and let them you know feel welcome to come around and ask questions and everything. So, um, bit by bit, Alhamdulillah, we are really um, integrating. Um, with the with the local community and um, I, I feel blessed to be a part of the community
7: in Belize. Wonderful, uh huh, in
6: that sense.
7: And it's great to have you with us today, Deshaun Ellis. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time once again. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Eid Mubarak from all of us here Thank again you. to you, to your family, and to all the and members Mubarak. of the community in the, the Belize Juman Jazakallah for your time. alaikum. JazakAllah. Well-
2: Welcome back uh, after the. <coughs> Uh, recording you have listened to one of the member uh, from Belize and uh, she was sharing her experience uh, during the Eid. As I mentioned earlier for those um, who just joined us I would uh, mention once again that we are uh, reflecting back to the past year that how the past year went and what we did in the month of May and we were discussing about the Eid festival which uh, was celebrated in the month, and the show was taking place, and uh, you were listening uh, from those uh, recordings, which or the you know the the interviews which were taken from our guests who joined us on in, in the studio. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has mentioned that, and you know, in his lifetime he used to. Keep fast not only in the days of Ramadan. He used to keep fast in other month of uh, other month or other days of the year, and for this particular month, the month of Ramadan, God Almighty has made it compulsory for all the Muslims to keep fast, and then the Eid was celebrated. And in the month of Ramadan, the purpose to connect with God Almighty to rectify, to purify yourself, your heart, to cleanse, to pray to God and bring good change within yourself. One thing I would like to discover how one should be celebrating Eid. The messenger of Allah never proceeded for the prayer on the day of Eid al-Fitr unless he had eaten some dates. He also relates that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, used to eat an odd number of the dates. Hazrat Jabir he says that on the day of Eid the Holy Prophet peace be upon him used to return after offering the Eid prayer using a different route from that which he went by. Then on the day of the Eid one should be praying as he was praying before. It shouldn't be the case that a person is not praying anymore and is not paying attention towards the you know, the change he brought within the month of Ramadan. On the day of Eid, in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we find something that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, used to offer the prayer of Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitr and used to deliver the khutbah after the prayer. Normally, in the Friday sermon, the sermon is first and then is prayers. But in Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha, first is prayer and then is sermon. One of the incidents I would like to share with you, has Ibn Abbas, that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, offered a two-rakat prayer on the day of Eid al-Fitr and did not pray before or after it. Then he went towards women along with Bilal, peace be upon may God please with him, and asked them to pay alms and so they started offering their earnings and necklaces which they were wearing in charity. By asking, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, asked that one should be giving charity and ask especially the women that whatever they're wearing they should give in in, in the way of God and they gave straight away. After that, now we will be discussing the topic of Rwanda. The refugees which have to migrate, have to go there to Rwanda because of the new policies. To listen this further, we'll be listening to one of the pre-recording pre-recordings uh, from our previous shows. Please listen to us and then after that we'll discuss this topic further.
1: Right. I uh, have the Ahmadi Muslim community, Sabah Deen Ahmadi, uh, with us here in the studio as well. Alaikum, how are you doing this afternoon?
0: Well, Asalaamu Alaikum, it's nice to be in the studio rather than on the call.
1: It's nice to be here. Very good, very good. We've got, you know, we, we want to ask you some questions uh, as well in regards to, you know, religion, um, you know, what, why 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 people are sort of leaving the religion as well. Um, just to begin with, is religion a thing of the past or do, do we really need religion in today's modern age? What's what's your thoughts on that?
0: I think it's a good question. I think we can use the uh, current situation of the world we're living in. Um, if I just want to take us back to the, the topic of COVID, um, I know that during COVID, when COVID first hit, the word prayer hmm. actually rocketed in, in Google search because people were looking for a rope of hope. Hmm. They were stuck inside their houses. They were told they can't leave apart from a walk or... Uh, essential shopping and to be honest I've never lived through a time like that it's the first time we've been told by the government to sit inside your house and make do Mm. and that was a time where people became worried and anxious and stressed and didn't know where to turn to and the thing they turned to was prayer Mm. which is a faith because they realised that nothing's going to get us out of the situation so I think it's a massive discussion point the fact that the word prayer rocketed in Google search just shows that people are turning towards faith. I know a lot of young people who've reached out to me on social media and have said, look, we need to turn to God because we feel like we feel like we're losing hope. We feel like we're losing a sense of positivity. But connecting with God Almighty allows us to see a bigger purpose in life. And that speaks that speaks wonders. I think once you are on the forefront or on the front line of trying to help society and help young people And you see these messages come through on a DM or on your inbox or via email or via Twitter, Mm. reinforces the need and the importance of faith. So not only do I think people are turning more towards faith, but young people, young people are turning to faith and they're looking for a rope of hope. So, yeah, it's not a thing thing of the past. It's a thing of today.
1: I mean, that's also, you know, that, that goes, that connects religion with prayer, that sort of element towards it as well. When we talk about when we talk about being a good person, when we talk about morals, uh, do we need do we need religion to to actually, you know, to to establish these morals to be a good person or, you know, the way that human beings have evolved. um, Our morals have gone from, you know, from strength to strength. So Do we actually need religion to actually guide us now in this modern age?
0: I think it's a fantastic question. I think it's a question which can probably be one question for the whole show. Right. I feel like one unique thing about religion, yeah, Mm. is it teaches you to put others before yourself. Right. We're not taught in this day and age, in school or in other places of work or, or moral standards or a certain code that put others before you. It's do what you can to get to the best place you can. Right. Network and meet people and go to events and we're never told that put other people before you and that's one unique thing about religion I feel gives you that and instils that that glimmer of of responsibility to mankind that put others before you and Islam teaches you can't fulfil God's rights until you fulfil the rights of his creation so I think um, having religion is key to being a good person and instils values and
1: morals within you which I don't think you can get from anywhere else Mm. So definitely, you know, we we need we need religion not just for not just to establish this connection with God with God Almighty, you know, with 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 prayer, but also religion it tells us, you know, what 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 what's the good thing, what's the bad thing, and you know, the Holy Quran it tells us this is a good thing, but this is the advantage of that good thing, this is the bad thing, and this is the disadvantages of these bad things as well. So it's not just you know how some religions just or some yes ways or no. right, it's just a yes and no. It's the reason behind that as well. Um you know there there are some other things as well which you know which a lot of people ask you know if if religion is a way of life why are so many religious people at odds with one another i mean even when we look at islam you know we see we see what 50, 70 73 74 sects and then we see that you know some of them are at, at each other's necks and they you know they they say no this is the right thing this is the right teaching if you don't follow this then that's it you're out you're out of the circle of islam it's not just about it's not just about muslims as well it's about other religions it's about jews it's about christians it's about you know various other people and different religions as well it's from religion to other religions as well so i mean when when people when when when, when someone who's not religious he says that you know I, I don't want to follow religion i i'm just spiritual i i just want to have my own thing i don't want to follow or be part of a Sort of a, a a a an organized religion because religions are just they, you know they, they just beef one another they just fight one another.
0: I think um, you made an interesting point when you said that some yeah. people, yeah, yeah, so some people in faith, some people from religion, or some people from organized religion, right. are at each other's necks, and I think that's really important
1: hmm.
0: because you can't say all of
1: them, yeah, you can't. Yeah, so you yes, said you some can't. of them exactly, and the exactly. thing is,
0: is that. The, the beauty of Islam or the beauty of religion encourages to fulfill each other's rights, it, it encourages community, it encourages to be generous and be kind and show mercy. And what's really important to mention is that every single religion out there has a minority of individuals who tarnish it for the majority of followers or worshippers or believers of that, of that religion. So it's a very we can't just make the general sweeping statement that organized religion itself Mm. is a mess. Mm. There's no, it's not the way forward. I don't want to follow one certain thing because for me it's not going to help me. Or I don't want to follow religion, but I think I think it's it's we can't go past this fact that what religion gives you, nothing else gives you. Let me give you an example. Yeah, we're passing through the the week of mental health awareness. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. we know the at the moment the NHS are strained um, when it comes to referring people. Or giving out referrals when it comes to achieving positive mental health. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, if we look at a relig- if we look at religion, we can see that religion fills this gap here. Why? Because religion teaches community, religion teaches us giving religion teaches using prayer as a way to achieve or be positive. Hmm. And I also know if you look at the NHS website, a way it, it tells you to achieve positive mental health is by going to um support groups hmm. and using prayer. Right. So it when- actually
1: says it actually says prayer right wow. so
0: when 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 we look at these things and what and what faith and religion gives you and look and we look at the issues and the struggles that society are going through mm. one person would realize and say you know what religion gives me something which society is encouraging me to go towards mm-hmm. So to write religion off or organise community or organise groups doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. It's giving us something which we need It's a, it's
1: a contradiction, isn't
0: it? So yeah. I think it's really important just to sit back and self-reflect because we are caught up in the right race of life. We are caught caught up in trying to achieve materialism and trying to put food on the table. I'm not saying you shouldn't, you should. But I think what's really important to remember is you can't write off religion based on what you see on mm, the TV. Exactly. You can't you can't base religion, you can't look at religion based on what you see when you see tips between a few people, right? I think exactly. it's important to look at the general thing and what faith gives you overall because organized religion helps.
1: Definitely.
8: Right. Um, gentlemen, um, we've got a caller. Uh, let me go straight uh, to uh, the gentleman. Assalamu um, Welcome to the Drive Time Show. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Can you please introduce yourself?
9: Yeah, my name is Shalim Rahim and uh, I was very fascinated by your topic for example, I just quote the gist of it, something about if religion has a place in society and why people become atheists. And I just had a very short summary. I mean, you covered a lot of the topics there with your previous guest. And um, I believe, you know, negative compounding, negative experiences can make someone question life and the hereafter. And a number of other things, like you may have already covered these, you know, the devil taking over an individual, mm. greed, worldly priority, upbringing. Ultimately, is like a sine wave, you know, life. So once you're in a downturn, you want to um, strive to get to something, and the human beings can fulfill that. And then you ultimately become to a realization that is a creator. And then when you love yourself, that enables you to have a positive outlook. And uh, yeah, that's all I want to really say.
8: Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for those words. Um, Really good that uh, that you joined us today. Um, no problem. Thank Have you. Thank you again. So um, okay. that was uh, Mr. Salim uh, giving his take on um, on why we need uh, religion in life, uh, Imam Saba, If I can come back to you, um, you also tweet um, uh, as at the Young Imam uh, on 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 Twitter. Um, you, f- you found me then. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. So you are you are famous or, or getting famous. I won't go so um, what, what, what is uh, your take on, on most youngsters, I, sh- I should say, uh, or many youngsters who think religion is, is, is actually a waste of time? And if I, if I can ask you maybe, what, what brings, what makes religion relevant for you as opposed to those, you know, thousands of millions uh, who don't believe in religion?
0: I think religion gives me a lot of things. I think religion gives me peace It gives me a sense of focus It gives me a purpose in life It's given me the ability To go out And help people To so the best of my ability It's given me the The purpose to go and serve humanity And all these things Have come from my religious teachings So I think religion is a way of life Let's look at one example For example, Let's just look at prayer Yeah We're encouraged to pray five times a day mm. It's one of the, one of the pillars of, One of the five pillars of Islam what prayer gives you is, is something like, like, non, like no other. We work. We, we, we work in an office or we might be at school or college or um, at home studying. People are working from home now. Another massive debate. Should you work from home or should you, work, should you go into, into the office? Regardless, what prayer gives you is a time away from the rat race of life. It gives you time and space to sit and gather your thoughts, alleviate stress, self-reflect, and strive to become a better version version of yourself. And when I mean religion gives you a way of life, sets you up and puts you on a track where you strive to become a good person, where you try your best to become a good person, and and you're encouraged to take everybody else on that journey of goodness. So for me, as an individual, it's helped me navigate through life and has given me the strength, which is purely from Allah the Almighty, to push through challenges and jump over hurdles and navigate through challenges in life, which I don't think I could have done without faith.
8: So, peace, purpose in life—you um, know—help yeah, navigate life. Uh, you know, the, these are these are really big statements um, to make. However, the uh, the view from the other side, if I can say that, is that um, a lot of people would contend that religion actually is a source of uh, Conflict is a source of wars. is is a source <coughs> of bloodshed, of division, schisms in the society. What would you say to that? yeah
0: So, look from Islamic point. from an Islamic point of view, I can only talk about my own faith. Islam only allows you to defend yourself and take arms if you're being stopped from practicing your faith and serving God Almighty. So maybe it's about taking that into perspective and looking at. Where these wars start, are they politically driven? Are they really driven by religion? I think it, it's very easy just to put that out there. Oh, all religions start war? They don't. They don't. Look at some of the trials and tribulations countries are going through at the moment. Are they driven by by faith to send bombs and missiles and kill people? Do they go there and say, oh, I'm doing this in the name of religion? No, of course they don't. What's the agenda behind it? And it's about having a look at those agendas and re-evaluating the question and saying, hold on, is it really religion that drives these misunderstandings? Is it really religion that drives these things of causing turmoil and upset across the world? And it's not. So I think it's a question that is yet to be debated and a question which has got a lot of depth to it and something that's got to be discussed. So we get to the crux of what the issue is.
8: Um, There is a history of... um of religious wars and conflict here in Europe. And a lot of this discussion, uh, you know, stems from from that. And there's then also this question which is raised of, uh, you know, show me a country which is a religious country. And, and there are many Islamic countries um, uh, as
0: well who call themselves Islamic. I, you know, I, like, I like the fact that you said call themselves. Yeah. Islamic countries are carrying on,
8: which is which is actually, uh, you know, probably uh, is, uh, part mm-hmm. of the answer.
0: Part of the answer to the question.
8: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, what would be your response uh, to those people who say that, uh, yeah, the religion? I mean, there is a lot of evidence to um, uh, to suggest that yes, religion has been a very divisive uh, uh, issue in Europe in the past centuries, and only when Europe uh, um, achieved its um, Uh, It's enlightened status, as it is called, that it's um, uh, uh, that it became uh, peaceful. Well, that that's to be contended as well. Well, did it. But um, nevertheless, this argument is made and this argument is also made about these Islamic countries or so-called Islamic countries where, uh, you know, you don't uh, you don't see all the things that you uh, talked about. where People are living a purposeful life. They're peaceful. They're happy. um, And um, uh, there's no conflict.
0: Look, I think it's a good question. I I don't think you have to look far to get the answer to the question. Let's look at countries where Muslim women are not allowed to drive cars. Is that what Islam teaches? Mm. Does Islam teach women can't go to school? Does it teach to force someone to dress in a way they don't want to dress? That's not Islamic values. That's a hidden agenda. That's not what Islam teaches. And I think it's important to look at what the faith teaches before we attribute Terrorism and violence To the name of Islam I think Islam is a religion of peace The motto of our community is love for all and hate, Hatred for none And if they were the moral standards And the, and the teachings which Countries, so called Islamic countries Used to govern Used to establish justice There wouldn't be any question of Is it done in the name of Islam And it's important to remove that misconception that terrorism and violence and hidden genders Um, and oppression is done in the name of islam because it's not so is an islamic country really based on true islamic values and justice i don't know it's another conversation to have right um moving on then is it right to raise
8: children with a belief or should they themselves uh should have should they have a right to choose when they get older do you have children? I do, three of them. How do you raise them? I raise them as, um, or, or try to raise them as good Muslims. Why? Um, because, because I think, well, okay. You think uh, it's the best thing? I, I. Oh, you, I you th- don't think
0: it's the best thing? I, I, well, actually more than that. I okay. think it's, it's, it's more, it's not. So I know b- that you're trying to interview me, but I just want to understand for, on a human level. Right. With your children. Cause I'll tell you how, how we raise our children. But how would, why do you raise your children the way you raise them? You raise them because you want them to be the best version of themselves. You want them to follow the, the things that you believe are good. So mm-hmm. if we've been raised on belief and faith, and we believe that it is a good way to live your life, and it leads you down the path of goodness, why wouldn't you lead by example? Why wouldn't you try and establish those values of goodness within, within your children? Who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. Of course, you don't believe lying or theft, or backbiting, or violence is appropriate, or good behaviour. So you wouldn't establish those things or try to establish those things within your children. You wouldn't. You only try to establish good things, good values which you cherish to instil within your children. We've got a four-year-old, no we've not, we've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. If my wife is listening, she'd be like, you should know how old your children are. Um, who, we, who we tried to raise as good Muslims. And we try to do that by leading, by an example, by reading prayer, by doing the namaz at home, by reading the Holy Quran, by telling them to use kind words, by giving ne- our neighbours Eve presents, by partaking in their celebrations and happiness. So yeah, I do believe, as an individual, you should establish belief within children, if that's what you stand for. How can one truly establish a connection with God? I don't know if you can answer that question in the next, is it 18 minutes, 20, 20 18 minutes we've got left of the show. I think it's a very hard question. I think it's really important to talk about what we've been given to establish that relationship. We've been given the Holy Quran. We've been given the example of the Holy Prophet Muhammad to follow. And I think if we tread on those lines very carefully and we try to follow the Holy Quran to the best of its teachings and try to emulate the example of the prophet peace be upon him will be on the track of establishing a relationship with God having a true relationship with God I think is based on that and I think it's a struggle sometimes to try and navigate through life and balancing life balancing faith and prayer and namaz and balancing your work life and time for your family Time for your children Time for yourself Time for your parents in that matter And I think it's about understanding the purpose of creation Which is to worship Allah the Almighty And bearing in mind That yeah, life might be difficult But I think it's about having the intention to do good And striving every day to make a connection with God Almighty Because Allah says If you walk to him, he'll run to you So I start making the effort And I think if you make an effort You'll see a change why does God test us? Why does God test us? I thought this was an interview about how to lead life as a good Muslim. It's turned into I'm back into my seminary. Okay. I, I want but to no, use no, no, this think, opportunity to yeah, 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 to really grill me um, and catch me out. No, I think um, <clears throat> I think God tests us to make us stronger. Hmm. I think everyone's test is different in life. What you might see as a test might be different to what I see as a test. Your pain threshold and tolerance threshold Might be different to my pain and tolerance threshold But it's important to remember the Holy Quran in chapter 2 says That Allah does not burden any soul beyond his capacity So you've been given the skill set To overcome every challenge in life Because Allah I said it doesn't test you More than you can deal with And I think it's about Whatever situation you go through It's about Learning from that situation So number one If that comes to you again You're able to overcome that challenge But number two On a wider scale If somebody else comes to you With the same problem Allah may put you through the test To help others Through that journey Of difficulty Because if you've been through it It'd be an injustice On the other person If you didn't help them Through the same challenge So Allah might be testing you To make you stronger also, has to help his people because we'll be asked on the day of judgment, Did you help my people by Allah the Almighty? And inshallah, God, willing, we can answer, Yeah, we were there for them.
8: You know, on, uh, on the uh, to build on to this, the uh, God is merciful.
0: Why can't He make life easy for us? I think we've answered that question. The previous question you asked me, Why does God test us? Hmm. Exactly. Why? Uh, no, why? Just, why can't? Why can't be No, because it, well, I mean, easy. You, uh, no. But like, how do you expect to do an exam? You go to school. You go to college. You're at work trying to get a promotion. Are you given a promotion? You know, are you? No, but you, you, you have to set an exam, hmm. learn new skills. So when you level up to the next step, you know what? You know that you, you've got the skill set to deal with whatever's put your way. If you're just throwing the deep end, I'll see you later. Good luck. You're gonna, f- you're gonna sink. You're not gonna float. So who knows what Allah is building you up for. You might have test upon test upon test. But after every hardship comes ease. And that's important to remember.
2: Indeed, uh, we were listening to Imam Sabahuddin. Religion is a way of life. And to connect yourself to God Almighty, we have to turn towards God Almighty and you know, take some time out and sit down and ponder over this. And of course it helps when the religion comes in and i myself sometimes sit down on on uh, in, in at night separately and ponder that how my life is doing what i can do where i'm lacking behind and of course one thing comes in my mind that i have to turn towards god to get true peace within yourself to find the way uh, forward and to bring a positive change within yourself and it's only possible When you connect yourself to God Almighty and those who are, you know, facing challenges in their life, sometimes they do not know where to go, what to do, what is the way to come out of this. And indeed, the way God Almighty has mentioned that I am the way, I will lead you, come to me, pray to me. So we will be back after the news break and we will discuss this topic further.
7: You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio.
2: As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa Welcome back in the drive time show here in Voice of Islam Radio. In first hour we discussed regarding the year we spent or we passed here and we discussed what we did in the month of Ramazan, what kind of shows, what kind of discussion we had and we were listening some uh, recorded shows and recorded guests where, which, who were there in the studio or over the phone and, uh, you know, answered a few questions and, uh, you know, one of the topics we were discussing about Eid festival, they shared the experience. Before going to the news break, we were discussing that religion is a way of life. Indeed, we need religion. Religion gives us peace, a sense of understanding, and gives us hope that there is one being who is there for us, who listens to us. They're discussing the very same topic, we're going to listen now, Sonia, Sits and he and she will be discussing this topic, refugees and religion, a way of life. And we will listen to that recording and then we'll come back and discuss other topic, which were discussed in the month of Ramadan
8: in the previous year. Sonia Skeets, who is the chief executive of Freedom from Torture, who has joined us uh, on the line as alaikum peace be with you. A uh, warm welcome to the Drive Time Show, Sonia.
11: Thank you very much for having me.
8: Excellent. Uh, really good to speak to you, Sonia. So uh, let me start by asking you um, about the work that, um, uh, that your organization does. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that?
11: No, I'd love to. So I work for an organization called Freedom From Torture. And we work with men, women and children from around the world who have been tortured. And we provide clinical care uh, to help them recover psychological and physical therapies and we also provide forensic documentation of torture injuries via something called medico legal reports which get used in people's asylum claims to prove that they have been tortured
8: mm.
12: um what
8: Let's go to uh, and maybe talk about the detention centres a little bit before we move to the discussion to Rwanda, which is really something I want to speak to you about. What are the current conditions that you see in detention centres here in the UK for refugees?
11: So first of all, it is just appalling that this country is the only one in Europe that detains people for immigration purposes without a time limit. And for people who have suffered torture... Detention is profoundly re-traumatising and indeed torture survivors are not supposed to be uh, detained in immigration detention centres but they very often are because the safeguards to prevent their detention fail time and time and time again. And there's about half a dozen or so immigration removal centres across the country and um, you know many people are detained although the numbers have decreased over the COVID period. But with the Rwanda program, um, there is a real risk um, that we will start to see an increase in the use of immigration detention to um, support that, that scheme, which we'll come on to talk about more, I'm sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Sonia, when when we talk about when you talk about Rwanda uh, specifically, what criteria did Rwanda meet to be chosen as a as a sort of a safe country to accept refugees?
11: it's a great country and i would say that the from the government's point of view the criterion was that they were prepared to do it
5: hmm.
11: in other words to receive asylum seekers in exchange for cash that's what we're talking about here the trade hmm. in in people who've come here fleeing torture and persecution and war seeking asylum um to be sort of essentially sold to rwanda in this day and age, to think that the United Kingdom is going down this path—it's—it's it's just breathtaking, really, and it's mm. cruelty.
1: Mm. I mean, it's interesting as well because the uh, UN Refugee Agency says that this policy breaks international law. I mean, is that—is that law actually enforceable, though?
11: Yes, good question. Um, freedom from Torture certainly has really serious concerns about the compatibility of this policy with the UK's obligations under the Refugee Convention and also under the Torture Convention. And uh, we are looking to mount a legal challenge to this. We're crowdfunding for that legal challenge right now. Uh, last week, the, or actually, sorry, earlier this week, the government finally disclosed documents that we had been demanding And our legal team is poring over those documents at the moment, with a view to exploring our our options for legal challenge. Mm
8: -hmm. In in the manner that this scheme has actually been announced, the speed with which you know the government has uh, come up with uh, with this whole scheme and this new destination, do you think that they've they've done their homework? Do you think they they've really done their numbers?
11: No, they haven't done their homework. This is a, you know, political deal that has been struck, an immoral political deal that has been struck with the Rwandan government. But the details are still being worked out now, and we understand that Rwanda is nowhere near ready, you know, to begin implementing this this deal uh, with with the United Kingdom. Even if you accept, as we do not, that Rwanda is an appropriate place for asylum seekers to be. Uh, to be sent. It is a torturing state. i must be really clear about that. Um, so, you know, but just to really sort of bring to life how serious the concerns are, according to the UN, back in 2020, Rwanda had only one official task with determining asylum applications. They do not have the capability uh, that this program is premised on. And, you know, we understand that uh, the British government is throwing a lot of cash in to try and uh, remedy this. This is just one of many, many operational issues that this scheme um, presents.
8: Um, you, how would you compare this to, um, uh, to the Australian government's um, policies? Um, they, uh, they send their asylum seekers to an island as well. What has their experience been like?
11: Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that Australia has served as the blueprint uh, for this Rwanda program. And I am an Australian um, by by nationality and I have to say that I am so ashamed of my country's record when it comes to the treatment of asylum seekers and I feel bereft that the United Kingdom would consider following Australia down this road. The Australian program has been an unmitigated human disaster uh, with deaths. With sexual uh, assault and safeguarding scandals, it, it is it is absolutely not a path for any country that respects common decency uh, to be following, and that's why Freedom from Torture uh, will be working, you know, with other concerns, civil society organisations, to do everything we can to stop this policy from being implemented.
8: Why isn't? anybody in the media talking about this appalling condition of refugees uh, on that island in australia
11: yeah i mean I, it's, a, it's a good question i mean i think for a lot of people in britain australia is is a long way away and nauru Manus island these are um, you know even mm-hmm. further away in in, in in consciousness terms um but it is you know the case that These offshoring programs that Australia has been running have caused such incredible damage to Australia's international standing and Britain indeed was one of the countries that in the early days castigated Australia for going down this route and so the hypocrisy that we see now uh, in, in Britain seeking to follow this terrible example is really disappointing.
8: Um how would you um wh- how would you describe the um uh, the differences this has versus the big heartedness that uh the British population has in general shown about the ukraine scheme
11: I mean, first of all, I would just say that public attitudes towards migration generally in Britain have been liberalising. Uh, at a very fast rate over consecutive years now. And we've seen not only in the response to Ukraine, but also in the response to the crisis in Afghanistan, that there is an incredible amount of compassion in this country. And indeed poll after poll after poll has shown that an overwhelming majority of people in this country want Britain to remain a place of sanctuary for people who are fleeing torture, war and persecution cannot agree more governments so the government's agenda uh, to keep this on the the front pages and to kind of um, incite fears about border control is an elaborate attempt to kind of re-inflame tensions around migration in the hope that this will distract people from very serious policy failings on the part of this government whether it's to do with our COVID response or the cost of living crisis currently or party gate there's any number of, of scandals that the government is trying to distract us from by whipping up hate and demonising asylum seekers Um, but they're just out of step with British public opinion and so Mm. organizations like freedom from torture have come together in an enormous coalition called together with refugees to support people in this country to start being much more proactive in their support for asylum seekers and refugee protection in order to increase the political costs for politicians That want to play this game of stoking hate against asylum seekers for cynical political ends. Hmm.
8: Is is there also, um, uh, you know, do you think the colour of skin comes uh, into this equation um, as well? You know, here are these, you know, brown people coming from, uh, you know, God knows what country we haven't even heard of, and. and, and uh, the others are our brothers, and they're white, and they watch Netflix, and therefore we should uh, accept them with the open arms? I
11: mean, undoubtedly, there is a deep, deep racist undercurrent um, to a lot of the government positioning um, when it comes to Ukraine versus Afghanistan or any other n- number of human rights crises around the world that are generating um, flows of, of people fleeing and some of whom seek protection here in, in Britain. But I would come back to the public opinion piece. You know, Britons um, were appalled at the mishandling by our government of the response, the evacuation um, of Afghans um, when the Taliban uh, took control back over, over that country. you know? And so I think, to take our minds back to when the Syrian war erupted and the outpouring of public compassion um, that forced David Cameron, Prime Minister at the time, to make that historic pledge to resettle 20,000 Syrians over over five years. All of that came from public pressure. And what we see is a government through this Ukraine scheme... Um, which is so different to all of the other kind of routes that exist for, um, well, in fact, there are very few routes that exist for non-white refugees, which is the point that you are making. But they are out of step with public opinion. Like British people are much more caring than this Mm. government gives them credit for. And this is a really, really important time for people to be coming together and putting pressure on members of parliament um, to be uh, reversing anti-refugee um, stances that they have been taking, you know, including in relation to the passage of the Nationality and Borders uh, mm-hmm. Act um, in in the last few weeks. So, but the fight this is a long, long-term battle. And so, anyone who's listening that wants to get involved and to become more active in uh, demonstrating uh, support for the principle of refugee protection. You know, come on board with organisations like Freedom from Torture or go, go to the website Together with Refugees and, and see how you can get involved, including by showing support on social media and all the way up to much more kind of involved forms of activism. That's how we're going to turn the tide um, when it comes to the political uh, position of this government on these issues if if I can be
8: if I can if I'm allowed to sound slightly dejected um, uh, on, on a on a on a live radio show and, and, and ask you that the, you know is there is there an element of uh, of maybe Islamophobia here as well when we talk about refugees you talked about um, you know something? Have sexual assault happening in in a refugee centre uh, where Afghans are um, uh, are placed uh, in Australia, and 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 they don't, and that doesn't get much, much attention here in in this country because Australia is far far away from here. Um, it, you know, equally, I'd say that probably you know if there was a, a a black guy or a brown guy or a Muslim guy who had assaulted uh, a white woman or um, uh, or had or had murdered somebody that would uh, surely have gotten attention here in the media. So the question I'm trying to ask is: I mean, you're absolutely right that you know the public opinion is 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 definitely important. It's uh, there is a lot of sympathy here, but it's the media which shapes the public uh, public opinion, doesn't it?
11: Yeah, and I mean at Freedom from Torture we work with many clients who have Muslim backgrounds and. I know very well from them the the reality of you know experiences of Islamophobia in Britain. It it, it definitely um, is is a thing, and it's an enormous problem. And we do everything we can to support people, to make complaints, um, and to speak out about these problems using the platforms that we have. But I what I do think is that um, there is there are elements of the media and there are politicians who like to. Stoke um, these things through dog whistles, um, you know, and, and the like. And I mean, I've been on many, many kind of broadcast programs myself over the last few months, where I was founding the alarm about what this new uh, Nationality and Borders Act was going to mean not only for refugees coming here from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and world results, but also for Ukrainians. And people, you know, couldn't believe it. Um, And and, and now we do have uh, ministers speaking in parliament admitting that Ukrainians, if they are passing into the United Kingdom via irregular routes, will be subject to this Rwanda program in theory. But to come back to your point, I would be very, very surprised if any white refugees um, were shoved off uh, to Rwanda under this program. You know, they are going to be focusing on people who are black and brown um, and, and, you know, in the hope that that is going to satiate some of the worst desires of a minority mm-hmm. of people in this country um, that are, hold deeply racist views. Um, and so, yes, the issues that you exist, uh, that you are pointing to exist, we know about them deeply from our direct services that we provide to survivors of torture in this country. Um, But I do feel really, really optimistic about the ability of people, you know, from all walks of life and religions and ethnic backgrounds in this country to come together um, to oppose these policies. There are a lot of allies building. And, um, you know, I think this is a long game, but in Australia, the tide of public opinion has begun to turn and Mm. I have a lot of confidence that it will turn here as well um, if we come together and start to be more proactive in defending these ideas and showing this government that it's on the wrong side of history
8: Skeet, so, it was such a delight to speak to you. Thank you so very much for your time um it was it was really a pleasure thanks
11: thank you.
2: welcome back. Uh, we were listening to Sonia skeets, and she was discussing uh the topic on whole that refugees and the religion of life here she has touched. Different aspect in the um, uh, interview. Now we will be moving towards another topic which were discussed in the month of May 2022. A topic which is very dear, which which is very near to our hearts. It's the 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 khilaf, you know, the caliphate and the Khalif himself, being an Ahmadi Muslim and on hold as a Ahmadiyya Muslim community we believe on the promised Messiah peace be upon him and we also believe that there is a caliphate after that and now we have the first fifth successor of that caliphate, and by the grace of Allah the Almighty under his supervision the Ahmadiyya Muslim community it's rising every day and prospering every single day now we will listen to one of the interview of Imam Atta mujib Rashid and he will be discussing the Khalifat of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and he will be discussing the Khalifat of the Promised Messiah Islam, and especially he will be discussing the Khalifatul Masi masih Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad he was the fourth Khalif of Ahmadiyya Muslim community we will be listening to him and then we will continue the show after the interview. Thank you very much. Uh,
13: we have uh, with us uh, Imam Atal mujib Rashid um, who is the uh, Imam um, of the uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, community and the Imam of the London mosque, the Fazl mosque uh, in South Fields. Um And of course we have had uh, Imam Atal mujib Rashid Sahib on our Voice of Islam radio station many times. And he obviously spent a lot of time with the fourth caliph. Uh, you know, he has had uh, the the honor uh, of uh, spending so much time and uh, can uh, tell us uh, a little bit more in detail about uh, what a great uh, person um Mizzat Tahir Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, was. Thank you very much Imam Majib Rashi Sahib for joining us. As-salamu alaykum
12: wa rahmatullah. JazakAllah.
13: Imam um, Atal mujib Rashid, just to start off with, um, uh, we, we talked. We have just come to this point where um, you know a lot of persecution uh, happened. Um, Ahmadi uh, uh, people of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community really faced very challenging times in Pakistan. Are still, of course, facing. But at th- at a time when the Khilafat, the Caliphate, uh, moved from Pakistan to the UK. And that was during the era of uh, Azam Izzatahir emir the fourth caliph. Why, uh, why did it happen? What led to the stage that the caliphate had to move from Pakistan to the United Kingdom?
12: Uh, well, I tell you that uh, actually the persecution uh, is always going on regarding this community from the very beginning. And you are right that particularly at that time, in 1980s, the persecution was highest. And it was in 1982 that the fourth Khalifa came to the office and became the fourth head of the community. At that time, uh, during the period of uh, dictator Ziaul Haq, there was an ordinance, which is uh, known as Ordinance 20, that was promulgated on 26th of April, 1984. And that actually made the life extremely difficult because the law said a brutal law, it said that no Ahmadis can declare himself to be a Muslim, can read the Quran, can call for prayer, or offer the prayer, or attribute Islam to oneself. Everything was a big crime. So in this situation, the Khalifa of the time obviously could not, uh, he was not in a position to guide the community, to give them any instruction, even to lead the prayer. So that was a very critical moment and he prayed to God because Allah Almighty is always helping the community whatever the situation may be and also after consultation with the elders of the community he decided that he should leave the country. So he decided to come from Pakistan to UK and uh, he he traveled in a way very openly in a way but also taking all the precautions and uh, on the in the car, he traveled from Rabwa to Karachi. And it was a very long journey, but everything went very well. But at the airport, there was a problem because the, on the, uh, there was an the instruction given to the, government, to the airports that Mirza Nasir Ahmad cannot leave the country. And in standing in front of the officer was Mirza Tahir Ahmed, who was the head of the community then, because two years before... He became the leader. So there was a dilemma. They could not dissolve that and solve that. So uh, during this, when the time was getting late, finally this was the plan of Allah, the design of Allah. They had to give the permission. So the permission was given. He traveled on KLM to a direct flight to Holland. And then from there, changing the flight, he came to London. And uh, by the grace of Allah, briefly I can say, under the divine shade of protection, his whole journey was completed safe and sound. And he arrived here, and he started the activities immediately, without a delay, the same day he addressed the members of the community. And from that day onward, he continued, uh, you know, uh, communicating with the members of the Jamaat all over the world. So that was a great thing. And there is a resemblance in his travel and the migration of the Holy Prophet sallallahu from Mecca to Medina. So, as Allah Almighty protected the Holy Prophet, so Allah Almighty also protected him. So he was here, back, uh, uh, you know, out of all that uh, danger, and then he completely devoted, devoted himself to the uh, service of community. This it's a very big sw- question that you have asked, but I. Give it a very simple
13: reply yeah. today. Yes. Yeah, and and of course that uh, that move, uh, as you mentioned, uh, was significant, wasn't it, for the um, expansion of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, and and the Caliphate really being able to uh, to to reach out to all corners of the earth. Obviously before as well, but obviously not around the you know the restrictions that were put in, in, in place in Pakistan.
12: Yes, uh, I may mention here that when Hazrat uh, Khalifat from masih fourth Hazrat Mirza Tahir he arrived in the UK at, uh, on 30th of April 1984. In those days, I was the Amir of the UK Jamaat. So there was, you know, great worry uh, regarding all the arrangements and all the facilities. So Allah Almighty arranged uh, and helped us at every step and there was no hitch at all and he just came here safe and sound. And that was, I think, a miraculous journey. And Allah Almighty protected him because he was, after all, a caliph who was appointed by Allah Almighty. We believe that all the caliphs, they are appointed by God. And so he was under the shade of the divine protection and how his uh, stay abroad in UK started.
13: Absolutely. And you can, if I... Uh... Ask you to kind of go back and remember a little bit about that time, as you mentioned. Um, how did the UK uh, Jamaat, UK community, change when the 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 the, Caliph, Azim, the Tahir Rehmulag, uh, came uh, to to the UK, and suddenly, obviously, everything, you know, was 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 happening from the UK, right?
12: Yes, you are quite right. Uh, UK Jamaat was established in 1913, so it is one of the oldest. Uh, Jamaat all over the world, so the Jamaat members were there, uh, you know, spread all over the country, but the number was small, and the sources was limited, and uh, I think uh, it was very active, no doubt, but not uh, to the desire or expectation of the Khalifat al-Masih. So when Hazur came, he infused a new spirit of dedication in the members of the community. He started guiding them and offering them all the help and guiding them in so many ways that with his arrival one can see that for his great revolution created here i mean that shamath which was no doubt active but not so active but that community became very very active and very energetic community and the members of the community they came forward always at the back of the call of the uh, Head of the community, and they dedicated all their services for the progress of Islam. So a new revolution was created by the coming of Khalifatul Masih here in UK.
13: Zakala, um, Hazmi Tahir Ahmad uh, launched a lot of you know projects and um, different uh, schemes. One of the you know very important scheme scheme was uh, the Wakfeno scheme. Um, uh, yes, yes. Uh, you know dedication um, of uh, young members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, uh, before um, even their birth so what uh, what was the uh, purpose of this scheme and, and how uh, did this scheme um, sort of unfold and, and progress
12: well uh, this was uh, and uh, this is actually a wonderful scheme organized, and initiated by khalifatul masih the fourth and uh, i would like to say that the scheme is known as e no that means a scheme of dedication which is a new one that in, in the, uh, that indicates that the process of dedication for the sake of a service of religion that has been there before but this is a unique and a new type of dedication which started so far as dedication is concerned for the sake of religion, I would like to say that uh, we see in the history of, uh, in the long history of the world the example of Hazrat Ibrahim dedicating his child, Hazrat Maryam, and then in the time of the Holy Prophet, wasalam, people used to dedicate their life and spend that time just in close proximity, ready to do everything they were ever asked, And then during the period of the promised Messiah, the founder of the community, people offered their services, so all these things were there. But there is a unique thing in the waqfeno that here the scheme was that the parents, both husband and wife, when they are expecting a child, then they should dedicate that child, and then when the child is there, then they offer that child to the for the service. But the child continues to the adult. In childhood and when the child is grown up then the that particular child has to renew and reaffirm that i'm I dedicate myself my life for the service of islam because actually nobody can dedicate the life of others so every child is required to make this uh, allegiance and this uh, promise themselves so this is way no and this is such a unique thing that uh, the some uh, example of that we don't uh, see in the past. I, I told you some example there. The great thing about this is that the children, they have their education, and when they finish, they, according to their commitment, offer their services to whomsoever is the head of the community. Then they are at the call of the head of the community, and they devote themselves, and uh, they do any service for the betterment of Islam, for the progress of Islam, or any other job allocated to them, they are always ready to do that. So we know that uh, this is actually a unique system of dedication. And again, behind that, why Huzoor started this in 1987? He felt that the time is coming when the Jamaat is going to grow. It's in number, and there are more and more requirements and, and we will be in need of uh, countless dedicators uh, to serve the cause of the community. So God Almighty uh, guided him to this scheme and he launched it. And thousands upon thousands of boys and girls, they dedicated. Exact number I cannot tell, but the number is in thousands. And this is an ongoing scheme in which every day the number is increasing. Boys and girls, poor, they are dedicating. And then they are, when they finish their education, they offer their services once again and they do whatever they are required. And the services of these uh, devotees is not limited to UK. It is all over the world. In India, Pakistan, you start in America, Canada, Japan, and Africa, or Australia, or in any kind of country. Wherever they are, they are either appointed in that very country and continent or maybe somewhere else they are always obedient to the call of the head of the community. So this is the number of uh, devotees of people that is required because of the expanding need of the Jamaat. Otherwise, if the requirement is there and workers are not there, that job can be accomplished. So this is actually a very powerful uh, source behind the fast expansion of the Jamaat all over the world
13: Jazakallah. Uh, absolutely uh, we see the fruits of uh, of this uh, scheme every day um, with the progress of uh, the the community worldwide uh, another great um, um, breakthrough was the uh, Muslim television Ahmadiyya the MTA International which was launched at the time of the fourth Caliph um, and and to be to be very um, you know um, Clear with this as well um, is that you know the the, the fourth caliph was very heart of you know the the work that went into starting this television. Uh, what is your uh, memory of 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 this this uh, you know journey uh, to start uh, the community's own TV channel and uh, how it has you know uh, by the grace of Allah evolved over time?
12: Uh, yes, uh, you are quite right. Uh, I would say that. Uh, the uh, start of MTA, that stands for Muslim Tel Aviv and Ahmadiyya International, that is really a landmark achievement during the period of Azhar Fakhali the fourth. I remember there was a time uh, before that when the head of the community, for example, Azhar Fakhali Fatunasi Salas, the third one, he used to mention that at this time we don't have any radio station, no television station. Nothing, no means of communication to the people. So we he wanted that at least we should have a radio station, maybe somewhere in remote part of the world. But Allah Almighty very graciously brought the day when suddenly Allah Almighty giving us the radio station, not only that one, but the television station was established here in UK. And then it grew from strength to strength. And the capacity of the MTA has grown to such extent, which is surprising even to everybody, not only the members of the community, even the opponents of the community, they are surprised. There are eight standard established channels which serve all parts of the globe. And the message from the MTA, that goes to all corners of the earth. That reminds me that there was a prophecy made by the promised Messiah, the founder of the community, that God Almighty uh, made this uh, pledge, or you can say, give him the glad tiding, that, that I shall, God Almighty said, I shall cause thy message to reach the corners of the earth. So how it happened? It did not happen immediately. Also, it started like that, but now with the advent of MTA, one can say, the voice of Ahmadiyat, the voice of uh, Hazrat mumineen the current supreme head of the community, that goes to every nook and corner of the globe. Every Friday when he delivers the sermon, or anywhere else when he speaks in a gathering, a live transmission is available, and the message goes immediately to all parts of the globe and all members of the community and other people, they can easily listen to what the Supreme Head of the Community is saying. So this has become really a well-recognized voice of the message of Ahmadiyyat. And that is something very great. And uh, through MTA, by the grace of Allah, the message is now reaching uh, all the countries of the world, all nook and corner. And one thing very beautiful is, that the message is not only given in Urdu or English, rather no less than 22 languages are in which the translation is provided at the same time. Live translation is available and in all these languages which actually cover the whole of the globe, it goes there. So that is a unique blessing that Almighty has given us and certainly this is a great means Of the propagation of Islam and the fulfillment of this promise which Allah Almighty gives that I shall cause thy message to the corners of the earth Mm. so we can bear witness to this that this prophecy has been fulfilled and now the message through MTA is actually definitely positively Mm. reaching the corners of the earth absolutely and
13: uh, uh, obviously People within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community know that all of this, you know, was started in, in very tiny, you know, small rooms, uh, not yeah, very yeah. big space. You know, if we look at the the the, the uh, you know the complex of of our, the the area of the Fazl Mosque, uh, where where you are as well, um, how everything was happening there. So, t- you know, t- take us back to that time where where, you know, people are coming from all corners of the, the earth really to meet the the fourth caliph in this small place, you know, uh, where, where a TV uh, uh, station is up and running, people are coming to meet his holiness, there are classes that he's taking uh, live on air himself. Um, how was the atmosphere uh, there? Uh, well,
12: it was very unique, very memorable days. And uh, I can say this is very inspiring to remember, even to think of those times. As you mentioned, there was a time just a small room was the transmission center. And next to that was the recording room. I remember there was no AC, no air conditioning at all. And the the garden lights used to be, uh, you know, purchased and used uh, for the recording. In the room, there is darkness. Garden lights were put there. And uh, outside, the temperature was very high. And people have to sit there sweating all over and uh, recording the uh, programs there. So much so that the people who is uh, generally one person standing behind the camera, he would say that I set the camera, you start speaking, and I go. Because I can't tolerate this uh, heat in the room. Mm-hmm. So I, many time I remember that I went through this experience that the person left me alone. And I was in front of the mic speaking and giving the statement. And all over, I was sweating at that time. Hmm. And uh, that gentleman would come exactly one or two minutes before the time uh, finishing. And then he will switch over. And next person will come. He will take my seat and I will go out. So these were the days, you know, very lovely days, I remember. Hmm. But very difficult as well. But such is always in the beginning. Yeah. I remember when the first test transmission was telecast. If I broadcast from the London Mosque here, I was also uh, one of the person who spoke in that very first test transmission. And Hazrat Khalifat C. Ford, along with his wife and children, he was uh, sitting on the upper gallery of Mahmood Hall and watching over a television whether the signal goes to uh, some European countries are not. So when the test transmission was there, <coughs> and uh, he w- he was able to see the picture there, I was told that he was over happy, overjoyed, that mashallah, by the grace of Allah, we are able to convey the message to European countries. That was the first step. But immediately after that, it went abroad: Canada, America, Australia. Europe and Africa and all, all Asia, everywhere, this uh, MTA is the global television. It is the voice of the day. I always say this is a voice which is echoed, which mm. is listened to by thousands upon thousands of people all over the world. Mm. So this powerful media which Allah Almighty has given to, the, to the, this community, that is certainly a great blessing of Allah Almighty and a fulfillment of the prophecy, as I mentioned, that Allah Almighty has truly fulfilled this promise that He is going to, not our sources, not our effort, but it is the blessing of Allah Almighty that the message of Islam, Ahmadiyyat, that is being conveyed to the people in their languages. Mm. I mean, when Zur speaks in Urdu or English, immediately the translations, live translations, are attached to that one. And they go there and then various countries locally into their local languages, they also translate it. So one can easily say that anybody living anywhere can get a live translation of the address of the uh, Supreme Head of the Community right at that time, then and there. So I think this is uh, not possible. Even in the United Nations, I was told, and I'm sure I'm right, that the translation is only provided into six languages. And we provide the languages in almost all the well-known languages of the world. So there's a big difference. This is because this is not a man-made sort of thing. It is a thing which has been originated with the help of Allah. And that is why Allah Almighty is always enabling the Jama'at to expand its resources and the means and the facilities and the benefits are going to the people all, all over the world.
13: Absolutely. Jazakallah. Thank you very much for, um, for that. Um, now, we, uh, we, we want to talk a little bit about you know how uh, His Holiness, uh, the fourth Caliph, showed us that knowledge uh, is, is so important, uh, not just spiritual knowledge or knowledge of Islam, of our faith, but also secular knowledge and knowledge of worldly affairs, such as, you know, um, current affairs, um, you know, different sciences. um, Especially, you know, I'm thinking about all the, you know, question answers, all of these sittings that His Holiness had that we can see on 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 the early recordings of of MTA, and obviously you had the pleasure and the honor, obviously, to 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 witness that firsthand. So, if you can tell our listeners um, about uh, you know how uh, how vast uh, his his knowledge was.
12: Uh, yes, uh, thank you very much. I think uh, you are again opened up a very broad subject. I am truly very honored and thankful to Allah Almighty that I had. Uh, this honor of watching and being a part of that process, when Hazrat Khalifat Musi fourth, he used to speak about various topics. He was a man of great knowledge, that is to say in the beginning. He knew the meaning of the Holy Quran and the sayings of the Holy Prophet very deeply. He read the books of the Promised Messiah and he went to, uh, through all these books with uh, deep insight And moreover, he himself was a man of great learning. And uh, one of the things which he did was, during his lifetime, and he was mentioning that as uh, something which Allah Almighty enabled him to do, after a long effort and research, and with the help of so many people around him, he was able to produce a book which is uh, entitled as Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth. I have heard myself from him that this book is actually the gist of my studies throughout my life. And all the points which he discovered relating to so many branches of knowledge, he has put it there as the title of the book indicates that starting from revelation, coming from Allah, then the rationality, then knowledge and truth, so that is the whole thing that he has mentioned and he has, uh, uh, and moreover, the question-answer session, as you say, he held so many questions. Hundreds of uh, examples are in number. Question-answer, and uh, not uh, well-planned, spontaneous question-answer. He was man, extremely expert in answering the questions. And he was well-known for that. And uh, he used to welcome the people coming for the first time, and bringing their questions, which he never knew, never had any hint what question is going to be asked. But when the question was asked, he would answer, and the listeners would feel as if he had known the answer before that. So that may be the case. Allah Almighty has guided, had guided him to that knowledge, and he was very, extremely experienced in giving satisfactory answer to all the people. I, as you mentioned, I have been able to sit in these meetings and uh, many a time it happened that somebody would come and uh, he would think, well, maybe a mullah of the mosque is in, sitting in front of me. I don't know whether he will be able to understand my question or not, not to think of the answer. So, but when Hazur started the answer, then they would realize, well, we are mistaken. He is a man of deep knowledge, vast knowledge. And they were completely satisfied. And once I remember an American professor came and he was just uh, taking it very lightly that I'm going to meet somebody who is uh, somehow um, described as the leader of the community, but he will not be able to satisfy me. But when he asked a question and Azur gave the reply, then he was really you know, impressed by that. So much so that I remember that when he came to my office after that, he asked, told me that, Imam, you have got a leader, and I'm extremely fortunate that I have the blessing of meeting him and learning so many things from him. So everybody appreciated like that. So this in the question and the question-and-answer session, particularly for the benefit of Arabic-speaking people, he started a very famous program of Lika Mal Arab. Mm. That is also a unique program. The questions were asked in English, and the reply was given in English, and instantly uh, Brother Hilmi Shafi Sahib, the late, he used to translate, or some other people before him or later on after his demise, so they, they, they used to translate. So immediately, the Arabic translation was available. And those uh, uh, sessions generally were going around the commentary of various verses of the Holy Quran. So often, Hazur used to uh, go for the detail of that one. And I remember very vividly that once uh, a question was asked that Allah Almighty has sworn in the name of certain things, heaven and earth and so many others, what is the significance of that? So that spontaneous question was there. Hazur then started reply. And he replied so beautifully, so deeply, Going into the depth of the matter, that a long time passed by, almost the whole one hour was taken up in answer to one question. And when Hazur stood up and went out of the studio, I remember Hilmi Shafisa was saying, putting his hand on his uh, forehead, <laughs> that I am surprised.
10: Mm.
12: We are Arabs, we know Arabic language, and Hazur is not uh, an Arab, mm. but the answer that he has given is surprisingly good. Mm. I'm I mean, totally fascinated by the depth of his knowledge and the way he has pointed out. So ilmisab said, <clears throat> we have read the Quran so many times, but we never came across this beautiful explanation which he has given. So there are so many examples. I'm just uh, mentioning one. So every day was like a miracle. You know, new and new things used to come. And all these things uh, are still available and they are put on air from time to time, and the people in whole Arabic-speaking areas, they are benefiting from that. Mm. So it was really, in one sentence I can say, that by the grace of God, the fourth caliph was an ocean of deep knowledge, Mm. very profound knowledge, and he benefited the people to the best of his ability.
13: Mm. Yeah, absolutely amazing, beautiful examples. Thank you very much for sharing them with us and i think just lastly the the love uh you know the the caliphs all caliphs have for for members of their community um the current caliph as well also the fourth caliph you know had so much love for the community and people of the community loved him everybody you know that uh, that remembers him uh, talk about that you know we had a personal relationship with um the the caliph um you know this is not uh, you know something that is is uh, is normal uh, outside of you know the, the 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 Ahmadiyya Muslim community as such because you never see anybody who has uh, such a great uh, personal relationship and so close connection with the um, leader of a community uh, what is the reason behind that you think
12: well again a very profound question you have thought i would like to say that uh First of all, uh, all the prophets and the promised Messiah is subordinate prophet to the holy prophet and all the caliphs from the first caliph, second, third, fourth and fifth, mashallah, at the moment we are headed by the fifth caliph, all the caliphs I can say with 100% surety that their heart is filled with love for all members of the community. Of course the love of Allah the love of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, love of the Holy Quran, and the love of all the virtues is there. But one aspect is the love with, to the members of the community. And all the caliphs, they have given splendid examples of that. There is one example in the life of Fadrath Khalifa Musi, the first. A person, his wife was just about to give birth to a child, but there was a problem. He came at the evening time and asked uh, that this is the problem. Hazur went inside, brought a date, prayed on that, gave it to him, and say that when the birth has taken place, let me know. So the person went and he gave that date to the wife. Very soon, the birth took place. They were very happy. They slept. And in the morning prayer, when he came to the mosque, Hazur asked what happened. He said yes immediately after that, The birth uh, took place and everything is okay. Look at the reply, which indicates his love and devotion for the members of the community. He said that you were happy to have a child, but if you could have come at that very time and told me, then I would also be been able to have a little bit of sleep. Mm. Because I kept awake praying for you the whole night. This is the love of one Khalifa. This is the same example of the second Khalifa. The third Khalifa, just one example come to me. Once it was a, he was told at the time of Jalsa and will gathering that the uh, government at that time refused to give you the access to use our own properties for accommodation of the guest. They said no guest can stay there. It was a problem. So the organizers, they presented that uh, at this time there is no accommodation The Jalsa guest would be staying outside in open in those very cold nights. The reply of the third caliph was that if the Jalsa guests are going to stay in open, then I myself will also stay in open the whole night. That was the reply. Mm. And regarding the fourth caliph, you are talking about that. I give one example that uh, a a professor from Canada, Dr. Gulteri was his name. He came. And I spoke to him in my office, the office where I'm sitting at this time, and uh, speaking on the uh, voice of Islam. I told him a lot of things about Hazur and the love with which the all the members of the uh, community they obey the command of the Khalifa. He is like that in that aspect I mentioned. He went to Hazur and came back and again came to my office. and he told me something very surprising,
5: mm-hmm.
12: very historic. Mm-hmm. He said, After listening to you, I had the feeling that the members of the Jamaat, they love their caliph very much. Mm. With that feeling, I went there. But when I listened to what the caliph had to say, I have come out with this feeling that yes, the love of the members of the community for the caliph is all right. But the extent of the love of the caliph for the members of the community is much greater than
2: that. So you were listening uh, to Imam Atal Mujib regarding the relationship which Khalifat and the community have with each other. The, you know, the the love and the pain the Khalif has for the community and the love uh, the community have for the Khalif. It's, uh, you know, uh, beyond the limits. So we have, you know, uh, seen some highlights and we have uh, listened to some interviews which were taking place in the month of May so on this we'll be finishing this show Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi